You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Meet the Farmers. Now this podcast is all about showing the breadth of the farming world and today we're turning to, Gala's going to probably correct me when I say a branch of organic farming, but I'm going to say a branch of organic farming called biodynamics. My guest for this program is Gala Bailey Barker, a first generation farmer who is part of the team here at Plorhatch Farm in Sussex. Gala wanted to be a farmer from a very young age, but wasn't always sure how she would or could get into agriculture. Following a degree course in archaeology, she became an apprentice on the farm here at Plorhatch five years ago, before specialising in managing the sheep and pigs. Gala, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Normally, I ask my guests to start by describing the farm that they're working on. Um, but I wonder if you could start by explaining in simple terms what biodynamic farming is so listeners can understand the context of the farm here. So biodynamic farming is about creating a closed system. The ideal farm would be a farm that had as few inputs and outputs as possible. So we try to grow all our own feed for the animals, um, be it cereals or grass silage. And we use all the muck on the fields like organic agriculture there's no chemical inputs but it is an ideal and it's not something we've managed to achieve on this farm biodynamic farms are also ideally mixed farms so we have as many different species as possible can you describe the farm here at Plorhatch farm give me some information of what goes on here it seems to be quite a busy place yes very busy um so we've got a farm shop Um, 40% of what we sell through the farm shop we produce on the farm. One of our biggest products is raw milk. A lot of what we do really is about the cows. We get up to milking about 32 cows. We've got Musa Rhinus or cows, they're Dutch cross-purpose breed. And then we have got about 70 followers and a few beef animals at the moment. When I first came, the herd was really old and we're basically trying to make the herd a bit younger. Try not to use conventional medicine. It helps if the herd's a bit younger. Our oldest cow at the moment is 15. She's actually very healthy, so she might be around for a bit longer. <laughs> um, and then we've got the sheep. So we've got 80 sheep at the moment. We've got 400 laying hens. We've got three sows. We haven't got a boar, although we'll be buying one in soon. We cross our dairy cows with the Sussex bull. We're going to be keeping more of our own beef animals, but so far we've been keeping four a year and we sell the others on to a local, two different local farms, depending who wants them. Then we've got a 12-acre garden. They've got 12 polytunnels. They produce a huge range of uh, vegetable salads, soft fruit, year-round. And then we have a dairy which processes the milk, all of the milk from the cows, and they make... A huge variety of products. They make halloumi, different yogurts, kefir, cheddar, loads of things. And then we've got a butchery, so we butcher two days a week. And at the moment, we haven't been supplying lamb year round, although we will be hopefully from this year with our ATUs. And we do have to buy in the old bit of pork, but most of it's from here. We don't do meat chickens, so they bought in actually from Herefordshire. Yeah, we'll hopefully be producing all our own beef within the next two years. 
Who else is on the farm team? So we've got Robin is our herdsman, and he's been here for three years now. Um, he came down from Garwald in Scotland and has been doing great things with the herd. We've got Johannes, who's our arable farmer. He's been here for, I think, must be nine years now. And he does, yeah, all the arable and the silage and lots of fixing. And we all overlap a bit. I also relief milk for Robin and get involved with silage and harvest when I need to. But you're principally the farm's shepherdess. Yeah. Tell me about your flock. Um, so we have 52 homebred ewes. 12 of those will be having their first lambs this April. And then this year we brought in 30 Romneys and they were all tags as well, so they're all having their first lambs too. So we've got, we've got a really wide variety of wool quality in our Schlen flock. I think they've probably got had some Romney in them at some point because some of them, they've got quite nice wool okay. for Schlens. <laughs> <laughs> and we try and get keep that stuff away from the stuff that's a bit less nice. I mean, we're really lucky because we sell all the lamb through the shop. We've got a fixed price for lamb, doesn't change. Um, I know at the beginning of the year how much I get paid. So over the last, over the time that I've been here, we've gone from 25 used to the 80 now. Uh, what I haven't mentioned is the land. So we've got 200 okay. acres here, and then we've got um, 200 down in Chaley, which is about um, 15 miles away. And then we've got land up towards East Grinstead, which is 10 minutes in the opposite direction. So we've, we've, and we've got other bits that are dotted around. We're hopefully about to take on another 80 acres, but um, that's permanent pasture. That's all on a, on a rotation. The arables are mostly four years grass, four years cereals. The main farm is obviously where the dairy cows are, so the rotation's much longer. It tends to be more like six to eight years grass. Um, and then we put the odd cereal crop in. And I assume all that land has to be registered through the biodynamic. Yeah, yeah. So that's all demand certified. So the, and the other thing we have to be for being biodynamic is spread preparations um which are a variety of things yeah um, we'll definitely we'll definitely talk about yeah. that in the biodynamic <laughs> section yes um, have you always wanted to work with sheep in particular yeah i've always loved sheep we had friends in north wales when i was growing up we used to go and visit them a lot i was born in north wales and we moved south when i was two we used to go back in uh, quite often in the easter holidays so there'd be lambs and yeah. Um, yeah, I actually wrote my mum a, a business proposal to have two sheep when I was 12, but <laughs> wasn't allowed. <laughs> so I fulfilled my lifelong ambition by having 80. <laughs> what are some of the biggest challenges of working with sheep? Uh, parasites, <laughs> I think, is a major one. Um, I, I guess being biodynamic is particularly really, really trying not to use wormers. I accept that we're in a very high fly strike area and we have to treat for fly strike. I, I wouldn't not do it. I think it would be unfair. Mm. Over the years, I've tried a few different things. And last year, I mean, it might, it's hard to know because it might have been a good worm year as well, but we moved the lambs weekly throughout the summer. Um, and I did only... There was one group I didn't worm at all and... And the other two groups I only wormed once, which was quite pleasing, because the previous year we had quite a difficult year with worms. And, I mean, the other thing is dog attack in this area. We had a really, really bad one. The first year I was here, we lost... We had a group of brown lambs. There's only 22 of them, and we were lost 13 no. out of the 22. It was like a massacre. Um, and then we've had one... Since then, we just had three lambs that were injured. Um, and we, the lambs actually got chased out of their fence onto a road the other day, but luckily there was no harm done to humans or animals because they could have caused an accident. What do you think can be done about dog attacks? 
I think it is really publicity and I, I do make an effort when I'm out sheep checking to stop and talk to dog walkers I mean I think there's a lot of really responsible dog walkers you know I've been out the last few days and I've been up we've got some land where there's quite a lot of dog walkers coming through and you know there's people who've got their dogs on leads and I just say you know thank you for keeping your dog on the lead um, I put up signs as much as I can but I think people just don't really understand the impact of it mm. in terms of you know it's incredibly traumatic for the sheep when we lost the 13 out of 22 there were still seven of them were injured we basically put down anything that couldn't walk and then you know I spent like six weeks two months squeezing pus out of wounds <laughs> I don't think people really realise the impact it has on the farmers and on the sheep in that sense as well. Mm. And people also have, you know, people are funny because they say, well, they were going to die anyway. And they think, well, yes, they were going to die anyway, but they were going to go to the abattoir and be killed humanely. They weren't going to be chased around by dogs and cornered Mm. and shredded. (laughs) And it's all very well saying, isn't it? Oh, my dog would never hurt anything. But at the end of the day, it's a dog. A dog has a dog's instincts. And also people say, oh, they're just chasing them. They wouldn't hurt them. And it's like, well, they're, they're hurting them by chasing them. Yeah. They can abort. And that's, I've put that on my signs I put up this time because you've got pregnant news off the farm. I've just said, if, even if they're chased, they can abort. So it's not just, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, you can't just say, oh, my dog won't bite them because <laughs> yeah. it's not the biting that's just the problem. Let's talk about you for a bit. Okay. Um, so you're not from a farming background, but you grew up fairly near here-ish, in the South Downs. yes. Um, Let's go back to your childhood. Um, Your parents were both in the arts? Yeah, so my dad's a wood sculptor. I mean, very much in the woods wood sculptor as well, so he used to work in the woods when I was growing up. And we always lived... Well, there's a bit when we lived in Brighton, but most of the time we lived in the countryside. And my mum grew up in Stenning, and my grandparents had a small holding, so she's kind of a bit (laughs) rural-y. I guess she had some understanding of it. Yeah, and then so when I was 12, I met the farmer's wife in the village where we lived. So a thousand-acre conventional farm. She was looking after her daughter's horse, and I used to go and help with the horses, and then I used to go and help feed the cattle with her. And I don't know if I don't know if Jeff would have really been that keen on me getting involved in tractors and things. I'm not sure he was <laughs> quite on board with the feminist movement, but. <laughs> um, so yeah, I used to, I just used to go and help out and load bales and. Stuff. So that's that's where it started. Yeah, so and like, I, round about round about twelve, thirteen. But I mean, I I wanted to be a farmer since I was really because of the kind of I went to the the Steiner School in Brighton. Some very uh, anthroposophical. Okay, yeah. there you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's very you know I grew up with a lot of people who were going to go into the arts or be designers or like yeah. it, it was kind of being a farmer was really weird in yeah. in the universe when I grew up and it wasn't something that anybody else I knew wanted to do and I guess yeah had not there's so many people who do come from farming families and you know that maybe the path's a bit clearer that there's land to be inherited or land to at least come back and work on and I didn't have that at all I always knew I wanted to do organic farming and I guess maybe that's why I didn't go to agricultural college because I didn't really want to go and study conventional agriculture although maybe I should have done, I don't know (laughs) Obviously going to a Steiner school gives you a slightly different perspective to it but even even at Steiner school would you say that your teachers encouraged your interest in farming? I don't know if they... I think I was quite quiet about it. I don't think I really told many people about it because it was a bit kind of... 
you know, it was that odd that it was a bit... But, I mean, we did... So, at the Steiner School, you do do... So, we do main lessons rather than whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they're in Northern School. So, um, we, do a, we do do a farming main lesson. So, we learn about... And it was very traditional farming, which is quite interesting because, actually, I think biodynamic farming is quite traditional in this, you know, mixed... Yeah. Small, mixed farms, dairy cows and pigs and everything all yeah. together in a in a system. I think it's... It is quite a traditional way of farming, um, and I really love doing that at school. And actually, um, we have the schools coming here. I don't know why I didn't come when I was a kid because I should have done because yeah. I've been doing it for years. But that we have every year. The I guess they're nine, eight, nine year olds. They come and camp and feed the chickens and watch milking. And so I think that's quite good in China school that they do do that. In terms of the the current education system as a whole, mm. what else do you think we could be doing? to encourage young people who don't necessarily have any mm. knowledge of agriculture at all or know that it, it's even a possible route for them. Yeah. Um, but they might, it might be the right thing for them to do. Yeah. What, what, what do you think we could do? I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think the best thing really is to get kids to actually visit farms. Mm. You know, there's, there was obviously a lot of rural schools that the kids are, are around fields and of animals and, you know, they might have dogs and go for walks and see the countryside, but there's a lot of inner-city schools that there's kids that haven't ever seen cows before. And I think getting kids onto farms is a really great thing to do. You know, it might just plant a little seed in their head that they think, when they're in their mid-twenties and they think, what on earth am I doing? They might think, oh, remember that time we went to that farm? I thought it was great. You went and did an archaeology degree. Yes. Um... Why archaeology? <laughs> and I know that you went to York, but uh, yeah, so why archaeology and why York? Archae- I did, so I did archaeology A-level as well. I think I've always found it really interesting. For both of my projects that I did making something for archaeology, I did null binding, which is like the original knitting which looks like a knit. It's all made up of little loops. And, and why York, I don't know. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, got, I got into a few places and I thought, although I grew up in the countryside, I went to college in Brighton and been around Brighton quite a lot. I don't really like big cities. York's quite a nice small city. And then you're in your final year yeah. and you're thinking, what do I do next? Was biodynamic farming in your head at that point? No, not really. I mean, so I, in my summers when I was at university, I did um, some work for the bushcraft company. So they do bushcraft stuff with kids of all different ages uh, in the woods, a lot in Oxfordshire. Really, really amazing woods. And it was, it was a great experience. I was absolutely sick of children by the time I finished. <laughs> I did it. I was like, you know, had thought, oh, maybe I'll go into teaching. No, I won't. <laughs> I went through a very similar yeah. experience. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And it was a nice thing to do after studying, you know, doing a dissertation and all the academic stuff, which isn't really my forte, although I'm not terribly bad at it. I don't particularly enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to just be out in the woods and, and doing practical stuff. And then I moved, so I guess I'd already moved home, but I wasn't at home very much yeah. in the summer. Came home, my parents were away and I was house-sitting for them for a bit. My parents had been shopping at Floor Hat and I came and saw it and thought, oh, this is nice. And I thought, well, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, but I should just volunteer. So I came and volunteered. And initially I was still living with them and I was volunteering a few days a week and working a few days a week in a shop in Lewis. And then they were sort of mentioning or maybe thinking about taking on apprentices. And Rose was already here volunteering and she said, oh, maybe I'll do it. And I said, oh, maybe I'll do it too. <laughs> so we applied. <laughs> And we, so we started, and I moved in January 1st in 
I don't know when was that, 2012? Must have been. Take me through what your apprenticeship involved. So I think it was just really gradually, because I mean, I hadn't had... I think I'm a very practical person and I looked after horses, which is a very, very pernickety animal to look after and actually quite a good education in looking after any animal, I think. Um, and I looked after a particularly pernickety horse. So. Um, yeah, and I, and I guess I'm, yeah, I've always been very practical and, and I was very physically strong, so in that way it wasn't a problem. I did a lot of rock climbing when I was at university. And initially I just did a lot of... So we feed the pigs and the chickens um, twice a day they go out some way, we feed them in buckets. It's a very, very low-tech feeding system and collecting eggs. So I did a lot of that and going around the animals with whoever was going around animals. I didn't learn to milk while I was an apprentice. Because I'd always loved sheep, I think I really quickly was sort of taking responsibility for them. They were they were being very well looked after, don't get me wrong, but there wasn't anyone who really loved sheep yeah. who was here when I came. So it was a perfect opportunity, really, for me to just basically have a go because the other person who was looking after them was doing a good job but was also very new to it. So I basically learnt on the job doing sheep. Yeah, the first two summers I was here, I did masses of baling. And there's something really special about baling silage, being involved in that process, and then in the, having it come back in the winter, and you're opening bales and remembering the day you made it mm, on a horrible yeah, wet can, day in the winter, and it's like, oh, it's like summer. <laughs> and so it's really that, I really love that we produce our own silage for that kind of connection to the to the summer and the different parts of the farm you don't see so much in the winter I guess yeah and I guess I just gradually kind of you know I first learned to drive a tractor by scraping the yard because you can just dither them out slowly and it's quite good practice because you have to do lots of maneuvering and, yeah. but with sheep I really did just learn on the job and I think if you have a sympathy for sheep it helps a lot because yeah. they're very in a lot of ways they're very delicate animals people say they like to die I think maybe they die a lot because people think they like to die but <laughs> <laughs> you know and the apprenticeship was two years. Yeah. Uh, was there a, a job waiting for you here afterwards, or how did um, that work? So I did two years. I did do. I had to do seminars and it was various bits of coursework, and we did block courses on. We did plant, animal, and soil block courses, so which week long courses about those. I actually did my apprenticeship technically for three years, but re- I mean, by the time I'd been here two years, I was even the second year I was here, I did lambing by myself and. Yeah had really taken the responsibility for the sheep particularly yeah I think when I was coming when it was coming to an end I was thinking well do, you know would I like to go somewhere else and I, part of it was like well, it might, you know that actually might be really good and then I thought actually I do really like being here I'd find it incredibly hard to leave the sheep flock at this point it's a very weird thing because we, we didn't have very many to be in with especially and now We've actually culled out all these from when I first started because they were really old. So every single sheep in the Clin flock I've known since they were born. And, you know, I've got, like, mothers and daughters and granddaughters and it's kind of a... I find it really hard to leave, (laughs) which is, like, a bit like, ooh, come But at the same time, I just would. And, I mean, I think it's a really nice place to work and it's a community farm and I think... Actually, community farming is really important. I think there's a lot of loneliness in farming and a lot of stress. You know, people are really on their own with things. And this kind of model is really helpful in that because there's a whole community and also because we have the shop, that really supports the 
you know, if, if I have a really bad year, well, if we ha- anyone has a really bad year with any of the enterprises, there's all the other enterprises to hold them up. It really supports the people. And so then I decided to stay. I said I wanted to stay, and then they said I could, so here yeah. I am. <laughs> so that ties in beautifully to my next question, which is quite important issue. It's sort of one of those un- unspoken topics that is going on in the countryside, mm. particularly perhaps with younger people. Mm. Um, is this... It's, it's more and more difficult to meet people. Yeah. It's especially if you have if you lead busy lives as well. Yeah. Um, and that has is, an impact yeah. on mental health as well. Yeah, yeah. Farming is just so absorbing, I think. And then you're so tired at the end of the day. I mean, the idea of then having to go out to meet anyone is like, <laughs> really? <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I think it is really just want to collapse. great having people just around. Because I've got friends in Lewis, but a lot of them have moved away now, and I don't see them that often. But it's, I mean, it's really social being on this farm. And there's twice weekly coffee breaks, and we have community lunches on Wednesday, and we have community breakfast on Friday. And sometimes it's like, no, I can't do that this week. But it's just nice knowing you can. Yeah. You know, if you feel like you do want to go and talk to someone, and you know, if you're having a problem with something, you've got 15 people to choose from to go and talk to about it, which is amazing. You know compared to people who were on their own. And I, yeah, I mean, it was it was a really sad end to the farm I grew up on because the farmer and his wife got divorced and he was in his 70s, but he killed himself. And that was really, that. I mean, I think that's partly why I'm so like, we need more communities in, I mean, not, it doesn't necessarily have to be on a single farm, but I think within farming, yeah. as they have got more and more isolated and they're getting bigger, so they're often really far away from each other and... There's a, I think there is a massive self-reliance and independence in people that want to be farmers because you need to be self-reliant and independent, but it can go too far. Uh, right. So biodynamic farming can seem perhaps a bit mystical yeah. to some, especially <laughs> let's let's turn towards yeah, the conventional farming community mm. who probably are aware of biodynamics, might know the, not know the ins and outs of it. Um, but there is this sort of air of mysticism to it. Giving yeah, giving you the floor now <laughs> to represent biodynamics. What do you think are the main benefits of farming in this way, and why should farmers of all kinds consider perhaps looking into it a little bit more? I think for me, the main thing is the this closed system. You know, just trying to have a closed system and really look after the soil by using the muck from the cows and using different, you know, the, the cows and the sheep graze in different ways and that's really important for the grass and I think producing your own feed, it gives you a lot of control over the quality of the feed that you're producing and there it has this whole other side which is the, <laughs> as you call it, mystical side um, and that's really interesting because I think on this farm there's a huge variety in, in how much people believe in it or don't believe in it um, some people really believe in, in the actual physical manifestation of, of the preparations in that spraying them has a really, does have a really physical effect. Yeah. Um, Just pausing there. Talk to me through, I spent a summer on biodynamic farm up in Galloway um, six, seven years ago now. Brilliant summer, brilliant time. Um, and I can't remember, where was it 502? Oh, I can't remember them yeah, all. Yeah, there's loads. But anyway, yeah, yeah. To, to talk me through the preparations. Well, I, I, I can't remember them all, but I can tell you, I can tell you the general principle. Okay, so we've got um, various different things. So there's, you'll put cow manure in a horn and bury it for however long and then dig it up. And you use a very small amount and put it into water and stir it for an hour. And, I then, you, that. and then you walk and spread it. 
you cannot I mean some of them we do do with the tractor because realistically we've got probably nearly 500 acres that need spreading we're not going to be doing all one foot for me what I really like about them is actually they make you spend more time on the land because I think there's so many things that pull us away from spending time on the land and even if it's just being in a tractor it's a very different experience to walk on the land and in Germany they have a saying which is the farmer's feet kiss the land and I think there is something really special about really paying attention to where you are and you know you do it a bit when you're stock checking but we've got fields that very rarely have animals in them so I think it's just really good to walk and then there's a really nice one which is the three kings preparation which is gold frankincense and myrrh so would as the name suggests sounds expensive Yes, I've got a tiny bit of gold leaf. <laughs> um, but that's uh, ground up on New Year's Eve and then you, you basically stir it and spread it on the 6th and you walk the boundary of the farm. And that's a really great thing to do because, I mean, this is the only time I ever walk the boundary of the farm, really, in, a, in one go. And then, you know, walk, we go around all our different bits of land and walk the boundaries. I mean, we don't always manage to do it with lots of people, but it's also another way to spend time with other people and, you know, have a chat. So is organic plus a good or a bad way of thinking of biodynamics? I think the only way in which you could call it an organic plus is that we spread preparations, really. Yeah. I think we really, really need, in, in the kind of, if you want to call organic alternative and biodynamic and agroecology or whatever, all of these different sort of alternative farming practices, like, the thing we do not need to be doing is arguing amongst ourselves. And I also think there's a huge strength in diversity. Mm. You know, Tablehurst have gone down the no-tail route with their arable, and I think that's great. They're really passionate about it. That's what they want to do. They should get on with it. We're doing... We've gone very light tractors, shallow ploughing, and that's what we're doing. We all have to decide, really, what we're going to do. And, and it's a bit the same with looking after animals. After, there's people who are doing calf at foot now, keeping the calves on until they're five months and then they sell them at roast beef so they go off when they're eight months and you know that's that's great that they do that we take our calves off at two weeks and they go when they're two years i don't know how we're meant to decide which one the cow would prefer <laughs> you know like but i think we need to basically as people who are producing food we need to go to the communities we're producing for and just say this is what we do you decide if you want to buy it I'm not going to spend hours persuading you that this is better than calf or foot because I don't necessarily think it is. <laughs> it's an individual choice. Do you think we have a responsibility to be open as food producers generally about what we're doing and how we're doing it? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, we, we're very open. When we're an open farm, so people can come and watch us milking. They can just go around and see the pigs visit the cows whenever they want to you know it can be difficult sometimes you know if you've got tb testing you know tb testing is a really difficult time there's, there can be a lot of stress it's not always like that but you know you get a really highly strung cow and trying to get them around it can look quite traumatic it's really important to explain to people what we're doing and it's not necessarily you know it's not to do it defensively but just to say that this is what we do you know, it's, it's a funny... I'm, when I've been milking, people will come to the parlour and they'll ask me about the calves. And pe so sometimes people ask it in a very level way and you, you're kind of thinking, in which way do I answer this question? Because it's it's, it's slightly unclear from where the way they answer their question, how hard line they are in, <laughs> in yeah. any particular direction. Um, but I always just try to just say, and this is what we do. And the other concern I sometimes have, and that, also a bit about Instagram, but also about people visiting here, is they're having their storybook idea of farming confirmed and thinking this is normal. 
And I think there are, I mean, there's so many, like, amazingly run conventional family farms in the UK that have excellent animal welfare. But we do have indoor pig units and cage tens and things that I'm, I wouldn't, I don't want to eat. That leads me on very nicely to your <laughs> social media, which you're yes. very active. So uh, if anyone wants to follow you, you are at Farmer Gala on Instagram and at Farmer Gala underscore on Twitter. Well, I see you're not as I'm not, you're not really, good, you're not I'm really not as good twi- Twitter. <laughs> not as active on Twitter. Uh, why do you use Instagram? Let's focus on Instagram. And how do you do you find it useful? Yeah, I think. I mean, it actually just completely for myself. I find it useful. Like, I really like going back through it because it reminds me of things that have happened in the previous year, yeah. which is really interesting because I, I'm, you know... It's like a picture diary. It is, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I'm, I haven't I haven't got a diary, really. You know, I've got my record books for the animals or whatever, but it's not quite the same. So it's re- I really like to go through and remember what, yeah. what happened sometimes. Yeah, I think it's part of just kind of telling the story of this farm, I guess. And, and I find it really interesting to follow other people and see what they're up to. And, you know, I've had a lot of really great conversations with different farmers and some consumers as well on Instagram about various things. Photos are a really good way to speak to people and without having to write long form. I I do really like doing it. (laughs) Which other farmers should listeners be following on Twitter or Instagram? Well, Nigel, Indie Farmer. Uh, I really like this biodynamic farming life. She's up in... She's in Yorkshire. Certainly in the north. I follow quite a lot of American farmers, which is always quite Mm -hmm. interesting. There's quite an interesting one, which is um, Five Mary's Farm, and they've got four daughters. Okay. And they've got a restaurant. I mean, they just do an insane amount of things. (laughs) But it's really... What I'm finding... I always find really, really amazing is, you know, they've got... Because here we're so health and safety, everything, you know, we're not allowed to have people in the back of the truck and... Because we're an open farm as well as even more health and safety, you know, and they've got their four girls on the back of the hay truck called throwing out hay to the cows. They're like, oh, it just looks so fun. And also, that's what I used to do when I was a kid. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's quite interesting to see. Um, it's very different. Very different. Uh, and you also write for Indie Farmer. I do, yes. Tell me about very that. occasionally. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, actually that happened through Instagram. Um, Nigel messaged me and said... Would you like to write? Yeah, actually, yeah. To tell listeners a bit, little bit about Indie Farmers. I don't think we've actually covered it on the podcast um, so far. Yeah, so Indie Farmer was set up by Nigel Akehurst, who is um, farming now over in, I guess he's in East Sussex, um, with his mum and dad. They've got beef Sussex and various sort of limousines and Continental, and they've got mules. And he was in London and has come back, I think, in the last three years to his family farm. He basically gets lots of different farmers to write about their farming. I guess in a similar way to you're trying to cover a broad spectrum, he's yeah. also trying to get people who've got different perspectives and different experiences to write. So, yeah, it's really it's a great site. And what sort of things are you writing about? I usually just, I mean, it almost in a sort of... So I wrote quite a lot about when I first learned to milk, about learning to milk and... Um, always write about lambing, how lambing's gone, and yeah, you usually don't get to write anything in the summer, and then <laughs> <laughs> write and write some massive piece about you know the highlights of the summer. Um, it's quite, I mean, I think it's quite a good thing to do as well as a just to write, actually take the time to write about what's happened on the farm because it's not something that's very easy to do unless you have <laughs> extra motivation. <laughs> you know, I really enjoy reading other people's articles, you know, about what they've been up to and. I guess it's a bit like your podcast, that it's really nice to just 
hear what other farmers have been doing and mm. you know what they're thinking about things. Here's a big question. We do like big questions on Meet the Farmers. <laughs> what do you think is the biggest issue in farming today and why? It's hard not to say Brexit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um <laughs> I mean, it is. It is. But what else? I think in a way maybe it's connected to Brexit. So I was in Wales at um Christmas and I know people who farm sheep in Wales and I also know hardline environmentalists who think there should be no sheep. Well, basically I was talking to this person and I said, what are they meant to do? Because it's not the sheep. I don't think it's the sheep. It's not the sheep. It's obviously the management of the sheep. But I don't think those farmers who are farming in those places actually have a choice about how many sheep they're stacking onto those hills because they don't make enough money mm. to not be able to stack the sheep onto the hills. So it's it's a very complicated issue, and I think it's very easy for people to just say, oh, this should, shouldn't be there. And you think, but that's an entire culture, a really old culture and a whole community that you're basically dismissing. And I'm, I'm sure there's a way, that, a much better way to try and have a conversation about it. But I think in agriculture in general, that's a massive problem. You know, there's a, you know we've got a lot of hardline vegans around, but there's also the less hardline animal rights people who want to improve welfare. But just the tightness of the margins in farming, I think, is really, really a problem because people are put under so much financial pressure. Mm. I think it's really hard sometimes for them, as much as they would love to do better animal welfare things, you know, to have less cows in a barn or whatever it is. We really need to talk about that as a society, really. Like, we actually, we need to pay more for food. I mean, that's our massive advantage here. We're selling directly, so we haven't got any middleman at all. But the expectation people have of farmers who have paid so little money, I just think it's not really fair. As a young person in farming, and a first-generation farmer at that, yeah. what are you most concerned about for the future? I think it's a big problem for people of how you get into agriculture. You know, if I was to set up on my own, I've absolutely no idea yeah. how I do it. You know, I haven't, I haven't got savings. You know, I haven't, I haven't got relatives I can lean on for cash. I'm, you know, I wouldn't really be able to do it unless someone gave me land. And I think land prices and access to land are just a huge problem. You know, and the people I know who do set up by themselves are basically employed. They're not, you know, it's just someone who's decided they want to set up a farm and they've employed a manager. And, you know, I mean, then there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But you're never, you know, we've got a problem on these farms. It, you know, the sort of thing nobody wants to talk about, but occasionally it gets mentioned that actually, how on earth are people meant to retire? Yeah. You know, if you stayed here your entire life and you've been in tied housing what happens when you leave and at the end of the day if you're if you own a farm then you're putting in work into something that is an, it's an investment really for yourself and for your family and with this kind of setup it's not mm. it's a investment for the community which isn't a bad thing you know i think that's great but i think it is a question that eventually it's answering and i think probably will as the as the farmers age out where do you see yourself in 20 years time Hopefully with some sheep. <laughs> and a very good sheep dog at that point. So I don't have to do so much running. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, I'd really like to still be farming. It's so, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it is such a vulnerable profession. You just think if you get injured, you're out. You know, it's not, there's not anything you can do if you get injured. So hopefully stay healthy and well and keep farming. I can't really imagine doing anything else. I've never really been able to imagine doing anything else. Yeah, I think I think you've said it there, really. I think yeah. that is that, that is the sign that you are doing the right thing yeah. for you. That's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking to me. Sure.
And that was Gala Bailey Barker at Plawhatch Farm in Sussex. And a reminder that you can follow her on Instagram at Farmagala. If you yourself are a first-generation farmer, I'd particularly like to speak to you for Meet the Farmers. Just visit www.thinkingcountry.com and you can find my contact details on there. For now, though, thanks for joining, and I hope you can join me again next month. Thank you.